I want you to remember with me back to high school or college. For some of us, that's in the more recent future than others of us. Uh, But I want to ask a question. What was your favorite or maybe what was your least favorite type of project when you were in college or high school? For me, my least favorite type of project was certainly the group project. Anybody with me? Thank you for normal people who hated group projects. I mean, I want you to think about the, the stereotypical people that were in the group projects in high school or college, right? There was the jock who would show up half the times to the group meetings, would do enough work to get a D, and would slough off during the whole meetings, right? And in every group, there's inevitably always the boss, who took charge, who was obviously the teacher's pet, and wanted to do way more work than was necessary in in the group, right? And then there was the blonde who would maybe share some insights, but it was really relevant. And then there was the nerd who was clearly the smartest person in the entire group, but never actually spoke up. You see what I'm saying? Group projects, they're destined to fail. I hated them because I often felt like, man, I could do a better job on my own than I could be, could do with this group. Maybe you've thought the same thing. But on the other side, if you, get a, if you get a group and a group project that works really well together, you played each other's strengths, and you're really working as a team, then you can accomplish more as a group than you ever could alone. But how often in life do we think something like, ah, oh, man, I would way rather do this by myself, or I really wish I didn't have to work as a team. I wish I could just be the lone ranger. I think we think those thoughts more often than we'd like to admit. Because we live in one of the most individualistic cultures in our world. Maybe the most individualistic society in the history of the world. And I know that term means a lot of different things, but I'm simply using that term to describe the mentality of, I want to do this by myself. I think that I can do a better job by myself than I can as a team. I'm just fine on my own. We live in a world where there's this total drive for personal autonomy, the hesitancy to ask for help, the radical push to leave home and graduate and have your own life, a drive for financial independence, a resistance to admit our mistakes and our failures, a mentality of, I can do what I want to do, I can be who I want to be, I can live where I want to live, I can work where I want to work, and I don't need any help from anybody else, I'm just fine on my own. Individualism. And I wonder how often that same mentality can kind of creep into our spiritual life. The idea of, I've got this. I'm going to be just fine on my own. I don't need help from anybody else. Because at its core, Christianity is anti-individualistic. Because when we come to Christ, when we turn away from our sin, when we trust in him for our salvation, we're admitting that we can't do this on our own, that we need help, that we need a savior, that we need Jesus to come into our life and rescue us, that we can't be the Lone Ranger. But the anti-individualism of Christianity doesn't just stop at the moment of our conversion. It continues all the way through our sanctification. Because God did not create us to live in isolation He did not create us to grow in isolation. He didn't create us to serve in isolation. He created us to grow. And I hope that just by you being here tonight, your desire is to grow in your relationship with God. Your desire is to grow in your next step in your walk with Christ. But we won't grow without 
community. We need each other. We're better together. My relationship with Jesus is a group project. Because we can go farther together than we ever could alone. God's designed us. He's created us to live in gospel-shaped community. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be here tonight. And if you didn't believe that, at least to some extent, you probably wouldn't be here tonight either. Because if we were created to grow and to learn and to live in isolation, then each one of us would be sitting on our couch, drinking our coffee, or more likely eating my ice cream in my pajamas while watching a Matt Chandler sermon. But instead, we're here, we're together because we believe that community is not optional. But just showing up to young adults on a Monday night, just showing up on a Sunday morning is not enough. Though it's a great place to start. And one of my biggest fears for our young adult family is that we leave so much on the table, that there's so much potential to fulfill the design that God has created for Christian community. But I wonder how often we just settle for mediocrity, how we're content with surface level relationships without ever letting anybody in the deeper aspects of our heart. And we just settle for average Christian friendships. So tonight we're going to talk about community and we're going to look at a great passage in the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. We're going to be in Ephesians 4, uh, 11 through 16. And as you're turning there or scrolling there, here's just a quick outline on the book of Ephesians. It's pretty simple. In chapters 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul is writing the church to Ephesus and he has this beautiful theology talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And then in the last three chapters, he talks all about the implications of what that means, of what that looks like, of how we're supposed to live our life. And we're going to dive right in uh, to the middle of chapter 4, starting in verse 11. So follow along with me as I read. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. So it builds itself up in love. Well, some call this text the manual for Christian ministry. Some might call it a Christianity or the church for dummies. Paul outlines what community, what the church needs to look like. And there's so much in here to talk about, but Paul uses an interesting phrase. He, he says that, uh, Jesus has provided uh, the pastors, the, the apostles, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, the prophets to equip the saints for the work of ministry. <laughs> now, without trying to get into what Paul means by apostles and prophets and teachers, basically what Paul is saying is that Jesus has provided church leaders, pastors, small group leaders for our benefit to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, that, saint, that word saint is a little bit confusing because when we hear the word saint used in Christian subculture, it means something different than the way the Bible uses the word saint. Think of the Roman Catholic Church's definition of sainthood, for example. For you or me to become a saint in the Catholic Church, we've got to do five things. First, you have to be dead for at least five years. 
So not a good start. Two, (laughs) you have to become a servant of God. Three, you have to demonstrate a heroic life. Four, there has to be a verified miracle, I believe two verified miracles, which could be as simple as a, a person who's alive praying to the person who's deceased. And if the miraculous prayer is answered, then that would be a miracle. And then fifth and finally, um, there's canonization in a second mass. Now, I hope that many of you are living heroic lives. I hope that all of us are servants of God. But if I pass away next week, please don't pray to me asking for a miracle. Because one, it's not going to work. And two, deceased people don't answer prayers. That's how it works. God answers prayer. But the Bible uses the word saint in a radically different way. That when we turn away from our sin and we trust in Christ for our salvation, we become a saint. It's a synonym for every genuine follower of Christ. In the Greek, the word means holy ones. That's what the Bible calls us. Not because we've made ourselves holy by obedience, but because when Jesus died in our place and rose from the dead, he imputed his righteousness to us. We get Jesus' perfection and he gets our sin. It was the most imperfect, unjust, yet perfect and just trade in the history of humanity. Therefore, we're holy, not because we've made ourselves holy, but because God has declared us holy through Christ. So if you are a Christian here today, then you're a saint. And I think we could start addressing ourselves like that, right? Like Saint Sam has a nice ring to it. Actually, don't do that. Sam's perfect, okay? We're all saints. But look at what the text says, that Jesus has provided pastors, shepherds, church leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That has some radical implications because I think it's easy for those of us who maybe aren't working in full-time church ministry to think, ah, it's the job of my pastor to evangelize or it's the job of the people who work at my church to, they do real ministry and I just get to help them out. That's not what the text says. The text says that God has provided our church leaders with the task of equipping the saints for their work of ministry. That means as a church leader, then my job is not just to preach. It's not just to lead worship sometimes. It's not just to do some counseling. No, one of the most important parts of what I get to do is to equip you, empower you for the work of ministry that God's prepared for you, to share the gospel, uh, to share the truth with friends and family, to disciple others, to use your spiritual gifts, to serve within the church, to grow into the people that God desires you to be. The best pastors, the best church leaders, the best small group leaders are equippers. And what did Paul say the purpose is? To build up of the body of Christ. And that's another great metaphor, a great picture for what it means to be the church. That Jesus is the head of the body. And when we become a Christian, that we become a member of the body. Each one of us is a different part, but we have a different task, a different role. But we're working together to accomplish the same purpose, growing into the people that God desires us to be. But that growth isn't something that happens individually. That growth is something that happens together. And Paul gives us a picture. He gives us a picture of the goal of a body of Christ, of the body of Christ as we continue. And that's our first principle tonight is go for the goal. Go for the goal. And there's three aspects of the goal of the body of Christ that Paul identifies in our passage. Look at verse 13. He says, 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Unity. (laughs) We've seen that word everywhere in the last year. Watching professional sports and it's plastered to the sideline, it's a buzzword in our world today, isn't it? But the word unity is not unique to 2020 and 2021. This is a profoundly biblical concept. But Paul's not using the word unity in in general and generic terms. It's pretty specific. And look at the outline. Look at the boundaries. He says unity of the faith. Faith. It's what we believe about Jesus. Faith that would be the message of the gospel. That we find our unity. We find our togetherness in the message of the gospel and believing rightly about Jesus. We find our unity centered on Christ and what he's done. Which means we don't have to be unified over secondary things that don't really matter. I mean, think of it this way. Maybe you've been watching uh, the NBA playoffs and uh, looking ahead to the finals. I mean, think of the Milwaukee Bucks. What's the goal for the Milwaukee Bucks? To win the championship, right? Now, does it matter if Giannis likes rap music and Chris Middleton likes country? Gross. No, it doesn't matter, right? Does that get in the way of them accomplishing their goal? Not at all. Does it matter if one's a Republican and one's a Democrat? Not at all. It's not going to get in the way of them accomplishing their goal. I mean, think of someone who joins the Army or joins the Marines. Does it matter if uh, one is from downtown New York City and the other is from rural Nebraska? No, it doesn't matter because it's not going to get in the way of them accomplishing their goal to protect our country. So the same is true for us as a young adult family, that we don't need to get caught up in some of the secondary things that don't really matter. We don't find our unity in our favorite food or our favorite sports team. You don't even have to like sports. We don't find our unity based on even some of the practical aspects of church, like the music that we like, our preferred worship style, or our favorite worship songs. We don't even find our unity in the secondary doctrines of our faith, like conversations about predestination or the end times. We find our unity, we find our togetherness, our purpose rooted in the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, which means that we break unity when someone doesn't have the right foundation. If someone walks in and starts preaching a false gospel and tells us, you can be saved, you can become a Christian by what you do, then unity is broken. If someone walks in and starts saying that uh, and celebrating what God calls sin, then unity is broken. We major on the majors and we minor on the minors. That's what it looks like to be unified. (laughs) But if we're being honest, because of our sinful flesh, disunity is the natural bent for followers or for people. Because we're, we're sinful, we still struggle with sin and temptation. It's far easier to be uh, disunified or not in unity than it is to be unified. So if you want to break apart unity, if you want to destroy unity, I've got two ideas, two things that you can do to destroy unity in a church or a family like young adults. Here's the first. Start gossiping. Gossip. You can destroy a friendship, a relationship in a one-minute conversation that's taken years to build. And I think sometimes in group like groups like young adults, we say things like, ah, you've really got to pray for Sam because he's really struggling. Guys, it's gossip, even though it's disguised by a prayer request. 
And then those conversations, they get around and they get back to the person that we, we were talking about behind their back and it, it destroys relationships. And to take it a step farther, I think to fight for unity, I think we could be a little quicker with one another to shut down conversations of gossip. That if we hear a brother or sister starting to cross the line into a conversation that sounds a lot like gossip, and say something like, and I'm not trying to play the Christian card or the holier-than-thou card, but I just don't think this is a conversation that I want to be part of. Can we just talk about something else? I think sometimes, <laughs> at least for me, I hesitate shutting down gossip, and I think we could do a better job of stopping those conversations and directing the conversation towards something that would honor the Lord. So want to destroy unity? Start gossiping. Second way to destroy unity, practice tribalism or favoritism. It's what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he's actually getting frustrated at the church at Corinth because they actually created these separate teams within the church. And some people are saying, I'm, I'm a real Christian and I follow Apollos. And then other people are saying, I'm a real Christian, I follow Paul or Cephas. And then the others say, I'm a real Christian, I follow Paul. And what they did is instead of making Paul and Peter and Apollos on the same team, they put them all on separate teams. They made them in competition with each other. And I think we can do the same thing when we say something like, so-and-so is my favorite pastor. Or, I don't actually take notes on a Sunday morning unless this individual is preaching. Or, I'm not going to come to church unless so-and-so is leading worship. Or, you know, that couple that I had last year, they were hands down my favorite small group leader that I've ever had. When we say things like that, when we choose favorites within those that might be leading us in our churches, we actually create divisions that weren't meant to be there. Imagine in a company that you worked for that the marketing department and the IT department found themselves as competitors rather than teammates. It's not going to work because they're mutually dependent on each other to accomplish the goal of the company. If they see themselves as competitors, then things aren't going to work very well. So the same thing for us as a church family. Let's remove the so-and-so is my favorite pastor line from our vocabulary. Those are two quick ways for us to destroy unity. So unity, it's the first uh, goal of Christian community. Here's the second. As Paul says in verse 13, the knowledge of the Son of God. Knowledge is the second picture, of, second goal of community. Knowledge. It's not a superficial knowledge in the Greek. It's actually a, a deep knowledge. It's a knowledge that only comes through experience. And Paul, again, sets the boundaries for this type of knowledge. Knowledge of the Son of God. He's talking about having a relationship with Jesus. Knowing Jesus personally. It comes when we accept Christ as our Savior, and as we grow in our sanctification, we grow in how much we, we love Jesus and have a relationship with him. It comes by spending time in his word and spending time in prayer. But I want us to think about what a knowledge of Christ looks like in the context of Christian community. Because if we're growing in our knowledge together, what Paul is saying is that we need to grow in our understanding of Jesus together. Our faith is not a personal thing. Did you know that if you go to BibleGateway.com and you type in personal relationship with Jesus in the search bar, you're not going to find anything in the Bible? It's a phrase we use all the time. But 
It's not something that we quote from Scripture. And think about this passage. Paul's not talking in the singular. He's not using words like I and you singular. No, he's using words like we and us and our. He's giving us a picture that we grow in our knowledge of Jesus, not just individually. We grow in our knowledge, our understanding of Christ together. That comes by reading God's word together, by coming to something like young adults and not just listening, but growing and and discussing the text together. Maybe it means doing a Bible study with some friends or going to church on a Sunday morning instead of just listening to the sermon, talking about it with some family or some friends on the drive home from church. Maybe it means doing a one-on-one Bible study with a friend or with a mentor. Maybe it means getting a group of friends together just to pray together once or twice a month. Maybe it means doing a version Bible study or doing a theology book study. There's so many ways that we could grow in our knowledge, our understanding of Jesus, not just individually, but together. Growing in our love and our understanding of Jesus. So that's the second goal of Christian community. Here's the third. The unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and third, mature manhood. And as Paul continues, he gives us a picture of what he means. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Here's the third goal is maturity. Maturity. And to give us a picture of what he means by maturity, Paul paints another word picture for us. He compares spiritual infants or spiritual children to spiritual adults. And you notice what he says, that we may no longer be children. And Paul is saying that at some point, all of us are spiritual children. The moment we get saved, we don't instantly become a spiritual adult. We start as a spiritual child and we grow in our sanctification over time. There's nothing wrong with being a spiritual child. We're all there at some point of our life. The problem is when someone remains a spiritual child for decades. The problem is when someone is self-deceived. They look in the mirror and they perceive themselves as a spiritual adult, but in reality, they're a spiritual child. And what Paul is saying is for a spiritual child, they, they don't know what they don't know. They haven't had the training, they haven't had the experience, they don't have the wisdom, and they're blown and tossed by the waves. They're carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. They don't have the spiritual discernment yet to determine maybe what's good theology, what's bad theology. Every spiritual child needs a spiritual adult in their life, someone with more maturity, someone that they can live in community with, that can have some of those deeper conversations and can point them towards the truth. This is an important thing for each of us. Maybe I can illustrate with a story. When I was in ninth grade, I was in this Bible study book study with some students from our church and with our youth pastor. And a couple weeks prior, a family that we knew dropped this book off at our house called 23 Minutes in Hell. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a New York Times bestseller by Bill Wisey. I think that's how you say his last name. And he recounts his personal experience in the book of going to hell for 23 minutes and then this experience that he had and then coming back. And I don't know why I brought it up in this book study, but I was trying to make some spiritual point. I talked about this this book um, that I thought had kind of impacted me. and, And after I got done sharing... Our youth pastor looked at the group and looked at me and said, you know, we've got to be careful with books like that. Think of what 
uh, Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for men to die once. Then, after this comes the judgment. So God doesn't give us a glimpse behind the veil. He doesn't, people don't die and then come back and have a second chance at repentance. We, people don't have a second chance even once they die to turn to God. That's not how it works. And he said, you've just, we have to be really careful about books that suggest something like that. And I'll never forget that conversation, not because it scarred me or because I was embarrassed. He was very tactful and very gracious to teach me and the group about errant theology. But imagine what would have happened if I wouldn't have been in that group. Imagine what would have happened if I didn't have that sort of relationship with my youth pastor. <laughs> then even to this day, I would still be the one first in line to get the kid's autograph from Heaven is for Real, right? We need people in our life that when we just stray off that path theologically just a little bit, they can point us back to Scripture. They can point us back to the truth. And this is even more important when we're in a pretty important stage of our life called college. A lot of you tonight are in college or maybe looking forward to college. Maybe you just graduated. And I think college students might be susceptible to this area for a couple of reasons. First, college students love new ideas and trendy theology, just stereotypically. And second, because college students are away at school, tend to think uh, because of their education that they've been enlightened and know better than family or friends. Now, I'm sure that's none of the college students that we have here tonight. But when I was 19, that was totally me. I would come home from college and I thought I knew way better than my parents. And kind of ironically, I would come home. I was in Bible school. I was in Bible college. So I thought that I knew way better than my home church, the church I grew up in, which is ironic because now I work at that church. But God in his grace placed some men, some mentors in my life that could point out the problem. The problem wasn't with my parents. The problem wasn't with my home church. The problem was me. There was a root of pride in my heart that I wasn't enlightened. I was just prideful. And it took some time for God to expose those things. But I think those are easy things for us to do when we're in college in particular. So I challenge our college students that are here tonight, and a lot of you are over here, that when you're in school, you've got to prioritize Christian community. You need people who are that next stage ahead of you in life to be able to mentor you and point you to the truth. That means getting involved in a great church or getting involved in a great campus ministry. Maybe that means serving. Maybe it's finding a mentor, finding, finding a discipler. When I hear uh, our college students come back during the summer and I hear something like, oh, I'm interning at my church this year. I'm so excited. Or I got involved serving in my youth group. Or I found a mentor through Campus Crusade. I love every time I hear that because it proves that you're getting involved in Christian community. That if you prioritize Christian community, your four years in college could be for the best years of spiritual growth of your entire life. But if you don't, it's really hard to live as a Christian island, especially at a university where professors are gonna try to convince you to believe anything but the Bible. Surround yourself with believers that can point you to the truth. Now that's obviously not just true for our college students. That's true for all of us. None of us graduate from needing a mentor. None of us graduate from having somebody a couple steps ahead of us in life that can point us to the truth, that can direct us to scripture, that can point us back to the Lord. 
And Paul says that as he continues in our text. Rather, we need to speak the truth in love to one another. And that's our second principle tonight. We need to triumph for the truth. Triumph for the truth. If you read this in Greek, it actually would read kind of weird. Paul turns the word truth into a verb. So he's saying, truth one another in love. It's kind of an interesting phrase. But it's two wings of an airplane, isn't it? We need both. We need truth and love. It's not or, it's and. And what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? That truth without love is just like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, really annoying. Truth without love looks like an angry Facebook post, Instagram post. Truth without love looks like a bull in a china shop. Truth without love is a problem. That's what happens when somebody's standing outside a stadium with a sign that says, repent or you're going to hell. Because it's possible to say something that's true in a way that's completely devoid of love. And when we do that, we hurt the name of Christ. But think about the opposite. What happens when we have love without truth? Well, we don't have that difficult conversation with the brother or sister because we don't want to offend them, even though we've noticed a sin pattern in their life over the last number of months. Love without truth means joining hands in a pride march or hanging up a pride flag at our house. Love without truth would mean not sharing the gospel with someone because we don't want to offend them, which is actually kind of ironic because if we believe the truth of the gospel, the most loving thing that we can do for someone is share the gospel with them. We need truth and love together. It's an important part of what it means to be in Christian community. We need to speak the truth to each other because all of us have blind spots. None of us are exempt from having a blind spot in our life. And I probably know yours. You probably know mine. But what happens if we're living in isolation or functional isolation? There's nobody to point out the blind spot. And there's no iron sharpening iron conversation. Reminds me of Aquila and Priscilla. You remember the account in the book of Acts? Two of Paul's traveling companions, uh, two of his friends, they're all tent makers and they're in Ephesus. Paul's not there anymore. And this guy named Apollos comes to Ephesus and he's a gifted speaker. He's from Egypt. He's really charismatic. People love him. He just connects with people's hearts. And they're listening to this guy preach. And in the middle of his message, he's starting to talk about baptism and he doesn't quite understand baptism to its full extent. Now notice what Aquila and Priscilla don't do. (laughs) They don't stand up in the middle of a sermon and say, buddy, you've got it wrong. They don't hold a congregational meeting afterwards and publicly humiliate him. But they also don't ignore the problem. They take him to their house. They sit down, have a conversation with him. They redirect his theology. And that became the launching point for decades of faithful ministry for Apollos. And I think from that, I learned a pretty valuable principle that we encourage publicly, but we confront privately. That when we speak the truth in love to one another, that if there's a blind spot in a brother or a sister's life, we don't bring it up at our table discussion at Young Adults. We don't text about it in our group uh, chat with our friends. That we talk about it one-on-one in a very gracious, very loving, very understanding 
way. But our blind spots, they might not just be theological. Maybe our blind spots are moral. Maybe it's an attitude problem that we don't realize. Maybe it's a root of pride that's gone undetected. We all have those. And young adults needs to be a community where we give one another permission to ask the difficult questions, the intense questions. And I'm not talking about the classic accountability questions. I'm talking about the next level that might sound something like this. What's been causing you the greatest anxiety lately? What's waking you up in the middle of the night anxious? How did your screen time report look last week? How are you doing controlling and minimizing the idol of social media? How about your heart, your affections? What's pulling your heart away from the Lord? What would you say is the biggest obstacle in growing into the person that God desires you to be? Maybe somebody would say, you seem a little less gracious and a little more on edge lately. Are you okay? Or How's your marriage going? Are you cherishing your spouse? How's your devotional life been going? How's your spending habits? Are you being a good steward with your time? Have you been disciplined lately? Have you been taking time to exercise? Are you living a healthy life in the midst of the stress? How's your prayer life going? You'll notice some of those questions on the back of your handout. And that's not an exhaustive list. You can even talk about it in your small groups tonight. Maybe some questions that we could add. But I need people in my life, you need people in your life that can ask the difficult, the intense questions who don't just assume that everything is going okay. But I think we hesitate asking questions like that for two re- at least two reasons. First, we don't really want to know the answer. And then second, we really don't want the other person to reciprocate and ask us the same question. But if we're going to be a community, if we're going to be a family that grows together, then we've got to let people in. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And when we let people see what's really inside, then we can start to grow together. And that's our final principle tonight. Grow together. And grow together. That's how Paul finishes Rather, we speak the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into him who's the head into Christ. That when we go for the goal, when we speak the truth in love, that we grow not just to love Jesus more, but we grow to look more like Jesus, not just individually, but collectively. That is what young adults needs. I think back four years ago, when we were meeting as a young adult family, there were Six round tables, there were 30 people in three small groups. The Lord has done a lot in the last four years. It's been amazing to see. But if young adults just grows in numbers without growing in depth, we've got a problem. That if there's more people here, but we're not growing in our love for Christ, we're not growing in our holiness, we're not growing in our sanctification, then we are totally missing the mark. My prayer for young adults is not just that we grow wider, but that we grow deeper. And I have five ideas as we finish, some practical ways that we can grow together uh, to look more like Christ. Here's the first. I hope we can get comfortable asking one another the first question on the back of your handouts. What's God been doing in your life recently? I'll make it really easy tonight because it's the first question in small groups. 
But when we see one another, what would it look like instead of talking about the NBA finals or instead of talking about the weather or instead of talking about our summer job that we don't really like that much? What would it look like to say, hey, what's God been teaching you recently? What's God been doing in your life? How has he been revealing himself to you in his word? And when we do that, we grow together. We grow in our depth, not in a condescending way, but in a genuinely curious way, learning to consistently talk about what God's doing in our life. Second idea is, is find a way to serve. It doesn't have to be in young adults on a Monday night. It could be at church on a Sunday morning or during the week. Maybe it's with VBS or with G180 in the fall. But I've experienced in my life that often the deepest relationships that we can find are with those that we serve alongside. That when we're fighting in the trenches with a brother or sister, that we build such a common bond, a foundation for a really intense an intentional friendship. I mean, just ask our Mexico team. One of the side benefits of going to Mexico on a mission trip is that we come back with some really good friends on our team. So third, third idea of how we can grow together, shameless plug, come to the young adult camp out. But seriously, if you're around that weekend, it's not just a time to hang out and play some games and have fun. It's a time for us to escape from the busyness of our life, the distractions of a week, and spend some intentional time with Jesus and with one another. I've heard over and over and over again from you that have gone gone to the camp out who've said, you haven't felt part of the young adult family until you came to the camp out. It'd be a great way for us to grow uh, in the depth of our relationship with one another. Here's another idea. We'll use the simple phrase, can we pray? Can we pray? One of my favorite things after young adults on a Monday night is to see uh, two people uh, with their hands on each other's shoulders just praying over each other. Amazing to see. And after we finish small groups on a Monday night or after someone shares a difficult and intense prayer request with us, instead of saying, yeah, I'll pray for you this week, what if we go the next step and say, I'll pray for you right now? Want to be a community that prays together. Finally, find a way to read scripture in community this summer, not just individually. Maybe it's a small group, maybe it's a version Bible study, maybe it's a guy study, maybe it's a ladies study, maybe it's one-on-one with a friend, maybe it means memorizing scripture with an accountability partner. Find a way to engage with God's word, not just individually, but collectively. Find a way to make that happen this summer. Now let's be a young adult family that grows together more and more in the image of Christ because Christianity is a group project because we're better together. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for a challenge from your word tonight that in our humanness it might be tempting to live a lone ranger sort of a life saying, I don't need help. I don't need other brothers and sisters in my life, but Father, we know you've created us for community. You've created us to be dependent on you and dependent on one another. So help us embrace the group project of Christianity to work together, to grow together, to accomplish more together than we ever could alone. So as we spend some time dialoguing in our small groups tonight, allow our discussion uh, to go well and allow this to be helpful, a deepening time in our relationship with you and with others. In Jesus' name. Amen.